Secure your digital world in physical form with IM8Bit. For over 15 years, IM8Bit has been crafting premium expansions of the industry's best games, from pioneering community experiences for Epic's Fortnite World Cup to bringing over 100 award-winning soundtracks from breakout hits like Untitled Goose Game and Disco Elysium to vinyl, and bringing the Ori sequel to Switch. Their passion for artistry and gaming fuels them, whether they're interpreting beloved brands from a new point of view or extending the mythology of another game, perhaps one you're developing. What's the IM8Bit difference? Their collectibles are premium, but for IM8Bit, they're personal too. See for yourself at im8bit.com. Hi there, I'm Ted Price from Insomniac Games. In this episode of the Game Maker's Notebook, I talked to Amir Rao, studio director of Supergiant Games, and Greg Asavin, who's Supergiant's creative director on their newest game, Hades. Incidentally, both Amir and Greg have hosted this podcast, so it was wonderful to have them on as guests. Now, as a caveat, I am a Hades superfan. I have spent a ridiculous amount of time playing Supergiant's masterpiece over and over. So, as a result, we talked a lot about Hades, how Early Access helped Supergiant refine it, and how they managed to tune such an incredibly deep game. But we also spent time discussing Supergiant's culture and their unique approach to embracing constraints. Finally, we spoke at length about their heavy focus on how to maintain a great work-life balance while making industry-defining games. Please join us. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Amir, Greg, welcome. It is really awesome to have you guys on. And I want to first just congratulate you on Hades. It is an amazing game. It has dominated my waking thoughts for the last couple of weeks. <laughs> and I got to tell you, as, as your main character says, just, okay, one more time, right? When he gets into the dungeon, and that is this game to me embodies the, okay, just one more time approach for game design. Thanks so much. Um, yeah. yeah, it's um, uh, great to hear you're you're enjoying it. And we're we're just kind of, still reeling from the response, really. Uh, it's way beyond uh, what we could have expected and just been really cool to see um, how many people out there are, are enjoying it. This game is kind of bringing a little more light into people's lives, which is kind of, I think, one of the things early on that we were hoping it could do back when we were figuring out what it was going to be. That, that totally, it's great to hear you say that uh, because this year in particular, it's, it is really nice to have some distractions from the craziness that's going on around us. And, uh, and just, you know, you mentioned that you guys were surprised by the response. What are some of the specific things that surprised you? Uh, I mean, I think just, you know, it's been an early access for since December of 2018. So it's, it's kind of been out for a little while. (laughs) Um, So, so I think part of it for us is, is kind of, you know, we wanted to uh, exit early access with a bang, as it were, and treat it almost like a season finale, series finale sort of thing, save the best for last when it comes to the story, because um, we always promised that the true ending of the story would come uh, in our 1.0 update. Uh, but I, I think, you know, first and foremost, we wanted to make sure our early access players would be really happy with where the game ended off. I, I don't know that we could have expected how just how many new players would 
would come into it and also really enjoy the game like like it uh, as a completely fresh experience because um, they hadn't been participating in the early access and you know decided to wait or weren't paying it you know didn't kind of think about it until until it was finally done so yeah Amir, uh, you you probably have more more yeah. thoughts on that too I've been thinking about that question like uh, when did Hades get get as good as people are saying it is because, <laughs> um, uh, cause it's, it's, you know, did it happen with our 1.0 launch? It clearly, you know, we had early access players who really were enjoying it prior to 1.0. Um, so, you know, when we were kind of going along, I feel like, you know, we released 11 updates before our early access launch. And I think we maybe, or maybe I felt like we had seen almost every type of reaction you could have to the game. Um, so everything that happened after 1.0, the way in which so many people, uh, played it, uh, are enjoying it, are still playing it, you know, even though our launch was, was on September 17th for, for the 1.0 launch is, uh, is overwhelming. It's, it's really surprising. And, um, it is unlike anything that, that even we had before this. Um, so yeah, I mean, we weren't, we weren't really prepared and, uh, obviously we're, we're completely grateful and, and over the moon about it. Well, that's awesome to hear. And I have to, I'm embarrassed to admit that I was one of those people who was completely oblivious to the game's existence before September, because there are a lot of games coming out still. And we tend to talk about games that are, uh, you know, being launched on the new next gen consoles. And it felt to me like Hades came from nowhere, even though it didn't. And I, and I do want to talk a lot about early access in, in a few minutes. But first, what also intrigues me is you guys and your background. And you're both, you both have English degrees, right? Yeah, we right. do. And I have to say, I don't meet many other developers who do. I also have an English degree. Oh, and awesome. the question I get all the time is, how does an English degree actually help you in games? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? I, I get to see, I, I'm, I'm lucky because I get to, uh, I get to write uh, for our games, so I could say it helps in in a fairly direct way. But but uh, I, I think Amir and I have have uh, joked about this a bit over the years ourselves. You know, I, I, my my personal feeling is like uh, school and college, like above all, they teach you to do things that you don't want to do. Like it almost doesn't matter what you major in on some level. Just uh, getting getting through it, I think, is an important can be a really valuable experience that can at least indirectly help you in, in whatever you do next. So I, you know, whether it's composing emails or just to like kind of articulating your thoughts, um, even if you're not, you know, referencing James Joyce day to day in your, in your zoom calls or something like that, it could, I think in the back of your mind, it's still affected the way you, you kind of uh, can be critical of things, analytical about things. Hopefully it's things of that nature. I mean, also, I think for Greg and I, because we were both English majors, we have that vocabulary. You know, we, yeah, that's we talk about theme and character and character arcs and and all this kind of stuff. And and so, you know, those things are important to us, just like the same things that drew us to to wanting to study literature and stuff like that. Um, and and so I think, you know, that at least makes our dialogue kind of we're kind of on the same page about a lot of those things, which which. Um, if nothing else makes it more fun to talk about, yeah. <laughs> um, even if, uh, you know, it's hard to say how much, how much did it, does it lead to, 
the stuff we make, it probably like like many of our influences, it probably does matter. Yeah, it it does. The, no, I I think you're totally right though because it it did you know it was it was highly instructive to like back back in the bastion days and figuring out that story. It's just I, I think the the shared vocabulary, just even the the understanding that it could go to certain places and discussion of you know unreliable narrator and tone and referencing specific authors and stuff like that. Like if if we didn't if we weren't on the same page about that stuff, it's like those conversations would have just like who who can even guess what that would have been like, right? So um, it, it's just I think we both have had an intuitive understanding that games are um, they're uh, powerful as a storytelling medium if kind of leveraged correctly, used in a certain way. So we've just been really interested to explore that uh, through our games as part of our development process. That is a great example to bring up, uh, Bastion, because I remember playing it and the unreliable narrator and how you all just used language to sort of fill in the world around you yeah. uh, was, I thought, unusual. And it makes a lot of sense now that you both come from an English background. And I, and I have to ask, since you mentioned it, is there a James Joyce-based game in your future? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, our, you want to torture players <laughs> we're working on the yeah the licensing rights to finnegan's wake uh, as, as we speak it's gonna be a first person shooter so oh, yeah english um, majors listening to this are all laughing everybody else is scratching their heads yeah. what are you talking about <laughs> i can't i can't think of an author i actually disliked more uh that uh, i had to study and just just yeah. because it was it, he's challenging yeah, it, it helped in in my case. I had a I happened to have a good professor in that one who kind of walked everyone through it. So, but I was I was like keenly aware that if left to my own devices, I would not get anywhere with any of this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but the, what's great about your games? I mean, all of them, uh, from Bastion, uh, Transistor, uh, Pyre, and Hades. They they all have a really unique narrative voice. And and again, we'll get to that. And I think that to me personally, really does stand out. And it's it's so nice to see that layered on top of the, the gameplay that you have, just again, because it's, it's unique. But again, before we go there, I, I do want to talk a little bit about Supergiant so that people who are listening understand more about what Supergiant is. And so how would you describe Supergiant's culture? That's a good question. I mean, I think our culture is kind of a a function of the fact that the team that worked on Bastion is all still here together today. So uh, seven of us worked on that game. Um, those seven people are still here. We've picked up people along the way who, who have also, you know, been here a long time um, during Transistor and, and Pyre. And we grew our team from 12 to around 19 people um, for Hades. And so um, we've grown quite slowly around that, that original group of people. And, you know, for us, we want our games to feel like a function of like actual human beings that you can feel, you know, kind of our, our style in the, in the things we're making. Um, and it's always been a very collaborative culture uh, from the start. Um, you know, our, our team is, is sort of predicated on trying to create a sustainable place for all of us to work um, because we think we do our best work together. Um, and so it's one of those, uh, one of those things where a lot of our culture and, you know, I don't know, our, our workplace policies and our habits and stuff have been configured around the specific group of people who are here, um, and how they like to work and how they can work long into the future together. 
uh, I guess is, is what I'd say about that in a sort of overview sense. Yeah, we're, we're very, we're very like, um, we, we like to focus on our craft a lot, right? Like we, um, we, we don't have, um, you know, to the extent we even have departments, they're not, they're not big departments. So it, it kind of is, is a nice balance between, um, solo, solo creators doing their own thing while still collaborating, um, on a bigger whole. And we try to look for projects that are like kind of uniquely suited to the individuals we have on the team. Um, because we're, yeah, we're not that big. Um, and we try to, we try to make the kind of games that we'll be able to make, I, I guess, uh, kind of fluently, um, where, where the, the individuals working on them are, are kind of having the best time that they can while, while working on them, uh, because, because game development is, uh, um, is so difficult, right? Like even under the best circumstances, it's really, really challenging. So the, the best we can do is try to find these ideas that we're just like the most excited about, um, so that, so that we can be, so that our motivations are coming from a really good place, um, as much as possible to kind of get through and try to finish strong, uh, with each one. And then, yeah, want to, want to stick around and work together, uh, on the next one after that. Yeah. And here we are, you know, 10 plus years later. So it's amazing. Yeah. It goes by fast, but it's, it's amazing to, to think that, um, yeah, that we've, we've kind of gone through all that so far. And some of us go back even farther, right? Cause we, you know, Amir, you're connected to like everyone, just about everyone on the team, uh, for, from, from way back in some cases. Um, so lots of history between team members. Yeah. Someone like Darren, who's our audio director and composer I've known since I was like eight years old or something. Um, and our, our primary voice actor, Logan Cunningham, who's the narrator in Bastion and the voice from the transistor and a bunch of characters in Pyre and Hades. He's, he's Lord Hades himself. Someone I played youth soccer with, um, a long time ago. So there's like a lot of friendships on the team, but also professional history. I worked with Greg and the co-founder Gavin Simon on a really, really big team at Electronic Arts. Um, so we also have the shared history of what it's like to work on a on a larger team, on a bigger effort, and what those collaborations um, look like, and what the constraints are really of, of really large teams. And so, um, you know, there was a lot of kind of deliberate conversation and craft around making sure Supergiant could be the kind of place where where we would want to work um, for, you know, for as long as we can. Well, with that in mind, and, and Greg, because you mentioned how difficult it is to make games, what does Supergiant do that you believe is unique in terms of balancing the pressure of shipping a game on time and in budget with with having a great culture where you know, people aren't getting burned out? And, and you, as you said, Greg, people are working on the games they want to work on. Yeah, what, what comes to mind, Amir, I want to say it's the thing where the, you know, you, you would bring up the 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 good old uh, sunshine analogy, yeah. which you can go into, but it, it, yeah. it's the um, a, as mentioned, you know, since our uh, quote unquote departments are quite small and sometimes just a single individual, like like with Darren, our audio director, um, the 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 decisions about what we do can be made um, by those by those people, like almost almost unilaterally in some in some cases. So it's like if we when we set out to make a game, it's really, really important that Darren, uh, for example, on a personal level, be very fired up about it because he's got to make all the music and he's got to do, you know, record all the voiceover and make all the sound effects. So like, why would we want to, you know, conversely, why would we ever want to like drag 
Darren into a project because he get he gets super like passionate and fired up about certain concepts. So we just want to find the kind of ideas that make the the individual creators um, what, like really kind of gung ho to to make it happen. And that's that's where you know again I think we can just kind of position ourselves to do our best work. Um, so it's not it, it, it like we we try to avoid making decisions by by committee as it were and when when um when a decision affects a particular individual's work uh, more more distinctly like they they should be the one uh to decide um rather than someone else kind of hand the decision down to them but amir you, you may be able to articulate that better no i mean i think that's a good that's a good articulation of how we look at ownership and you know especially important as a as a way to get projects off the ground and also to have accountability across the team um I think also we're just like um, in terms of how we've made it work once the once things are really in motion. Like the first value, we we didn't used to have company values. We because we worked at places like EA um, that sometimes had these values, and it felt sometimes like um, they had a hard time sticking to them because they were values that had to apply to you know seven thousand people or whatever. Um, in our case, kind of after Pyre, we decided to to more discreetly articulate our values. And the first one we actually have is this like one around embracing constraints, mm -hmm. um, which I think we, we kind of do at all levels of the team. We just, we're small. So our games are inherently constrained. Um, they're constrained by the people who work here. We're going to pursue concepts that this team can do. Um, they're constrained because um, like any company, you have limited time and, and limited resources and, those constraints can become a really good part of the character of the game. They can become useful to your process. Um, and so we're always kind of trying to identify what those are and stay within them. Um, yeah. When you start trying to really push that stuff really hard, you can get into a lot of trouble, I think, um, because because the constraints are real. They're real on everybody. They're real on big teams too. Um, um, so there's just no way around, around that. And so... In our case, um, we just always really try to be cognizant of like what are the limits, um, you know, personal and otherwise, and how do we how do we make sure we we kind of make decisions within those. Yeah, I I think that that's been such an important. Uh, it it like it works even on a micro level with, like you said, it's about the character of the games, like the the use of narration and Bastion. Which, which you know, was kind of considered one of the defining characteristics of that game. Something like that is an example of something born of a constraint, where it's like, you know, this game isn't going to have big fancy cutscenes or whatever. But Amir, incidentally, and Darren, you know, know this genius actor named Logan Cunningham, and both Darren and Logan have never worked on a game before at that time. But you know, Amir, one day you kind of phone him up, right? And it's like, hey, can can you record some lines because we want to try a thing. Um, you know, as part of the narrative experimentation, and you plug his voice into the game, and suddenly it's 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 almost like magic, and like you see something really promising right away. But like knowing, you know, having just the one voice actor of of that caliber kind of in our roster led to this idea of you know let's just tell the entire game from this one character's point of view, um, basically, and then it, it it ends up being like a standout aspect of the game, but it's born um, of this of this constraint. Um, and and I think it, like every yeah every single one of our projects has had uh, examples along those lines where we just kind of accept what the limitation is and then just try to get uh, hopefully come up with something clever uh, a clever way to spin it in the game that we're working on. 
that's a, a fantastic sort of mantra, you know, to work within constraints. And and just to continue on that path, do your constraints get tighter as you are moving through production? And, and if and when they do, how do you deal with them? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, my favorite constraints are the ones we just sort of choose, right? Because at least <laughs> um, at least you have yourself to blame for them. And, you know, during early access, I think uh, one of our constraints that we put on ourselves, sort of inspired by other early access titles, we thought were doing this um, particularly well, is every single time we release an update, we put a date um, inside the main menu, right? And it said, this is when you can expect the next update. And there was one moment where we put a month and not a date because we were a little bit less sure about when exactly that was going to drop. But we hit we hit those dates and we hit those months every single time. Um, and it took us a little bit of, um, of learning to get to a cadence that was better and more sustainable for us. We were doing updates every month and that turned into, you know, we tried eight weeks, we tried five weeks and settled, you know, somewhere in this kind of eight to 10 weeks mark for updates on Hades. Um, but it's an example of something where um, because we sort of called that and we got used to it and we learned what the rhythm was and what we could do in that time, learn largely by sometimes failing to have things come together in that time or by, uh, you know, sometimes pushing a little hard on, 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 you know, one aspect or another when we were trying to finish something and having to finish it, you know, in a subsequent patch or something. But in all of those cases, um, it's an example of us saying we want to like a feature of our early access we care about is the reliability of updates. And so that's going to become a key constraint for us in how we build it, how we make it, what we choose to do. Um, and so it, it's, it's just an example of one of the ways in which we try to structure our process. We have like a lot of rules we basically put on ourselves that govern our, govern our collaboration or govern our process. And, um, and, you know, while, well, at first you kind of guess at what they should be, early access actually afforded us the opportunity to refine that and make it even stronger as part of our production process. Well, when you mention adhering to a specific deliverable, like reliability, right? You, you've said, hey, we're going we're gonna to hit this date no matter what. I, I know that people on the Insomnia team will often talk about how when you squeeze a balloon at you know, one end, the other end grows bigger. What, do you, what gives usually? Or does anything give uh, when you have to make those really hard decisions along the way? Yeah, we we got really good at deferring stuff. So basically, the our production started following a rhythm that was actually quite deliberately architected by, uh, in large part, by our co-founder Gavin Simon. Where, you know, there would be the ideation for a couple of days. There would be the feature week or two, and then after the feature week, there'd be the content week, and then we would deliberately move into polish and deliberately move into you know locking down certain files so we couldn't make certain types of changes at the very end and we started incorporating the community so a small section of community beta testers got access to the update five or six days or a week or more and that period started growing as the updates got longer so we could fix some of those issues and then they would launch and then there would be a period where we'd read all the feedback in the discord and then incorporate that feedback and then we do that process again so it started to have like a rhythm and the strongest tool in our arsenal was deferring, was deferring a problem out of the update because in the feature week, it wasn't coming together. Um, and we knew it wasn't necessary for the character of what we were trying to do in that particular update and it could come later. And so um, for us, there the way in which early access both um, like helped, like, so 
Hades got a lot bigger over the course of its early access, so I don't mean to imply that um, <laughs> um, there wasn't a lot of increase in the ambition of the game over time. But it did, um, the, the sort of deferral tool was so strong because we knew if in the first one or two weeks of an update, we didn't have a system made or we didn't have an idea completely fleshed out or you know we hadn't figured out what we were going to do for the creative concept of it or something like that, um, it should go into the next one or the one after that. And, or maybe not be done at all, right? Yeah, maybe not be done at all. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a number of things that didn't make sense anymore after five or six or seven updates. Um, and, or we had covered them in a different way. Um, so, it, so the specific idea was no longer, no longer relevant. Yeah, the um, you know we would we would joke about uh, you know sometimes people refer to father time or something like that. We joke about executive producer time, um, yeah. and we we like um, as one in terms of embracing constraints. We actually kind of like sometimes having those those deadlines uh, for ourselves because it does um, it does help you make certain types of decisions uh, when when you're on deadline, and it helps sort of constrain aspects of the scope of what. You could do because other when it's completely blue sky and you have limitless, you think you have li limitless resources. It can be very paralyzing, uh, deciding how to proceed. And we actually had a little bit of that at the start of Transistor before we found our footing uh, on that game. But in Hades, you know, with these like with these updates uh, scheduled for like uh, a fair, you know, a a chunk of time, but not a huge chunk of time, it it meant we could really only do so much, and we would have to focus on what those things were and like. Either we would quickly identify an idea that felt f uh, feasible to us, uh, or we would, yeah, either defer it or, or just not do it at all. And and it kind of took me back uh, to the to the Bastion days in a good way, which I think was a little bit deliberate with with many aspects of Hades. But like on Bastion, we you know our mindset was if we can't do something like in a day, we probably shouldn't do it at all um, because we just don't have the staff to like do these kind of long term investments and if a feature you know required weeks and weeks in order to bear fruit um that's just not something that's kind of not a luxury that we had um so similarly with hades we were always kind of looking for the low-hanging fruit and things that we could execute uh kind of efficiently and just try to do a lot of that stuff the, the stuff that the team started to get like really proficient at at doing and you know generally enjoyed doing um and then yeah i think over time we looked up and suddenly it was a big game <laughs> Yeah, well, that example is a great one. I mean, that example of just deciding that, hey, if we can't do it in a day, it's not worth doing. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much, how often that applied to Hades, but certainly on a first game, that's a great one. And it reminds me of a book. Have you guys read A Beautiful Constraint? I'm familiar with the title. I have not read it though. Actually, that sounds very relevant. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, yeah. a lot of what you're talking about is is actually. Uh, covered in the book and there are plenty of examples from other industries, but I, we, I asked a lot of insomniacs to read it at one point, just because we run into exactly the same problems. You know, how do you establish constraints? What are the right constraints? How do you avoid uh, feeling like a victim if at the mercy of the development process? Right. And the book has a lot of really good lessons that you guys have already clearly discovered, but I, I'd recommend it for anybody listening. Sorry. I usually don't plug books, uh, but I love the fact that you guys have, have just made this part of your development process, working within constraints. I was going to move on to another question about culture, but if I think this is this part of the conversation is really important. Yeah, no, I, I would be happy to hear the next question, actually. I was just, uh, I was just going to say I, I wanted to check out the book. Thanks. Oh, sure. Okay. Well, uh, 
one thing I heard one of you say in an interview or mention was something called anti-burnout fail-safes. Or maybe somebody else referenced that term when talking about Supergiant. Is, does that sound familiar? Yeah. So I think there was a possibly an interview we did with Nathan Grayson about some of these okay. things. Um, Nathan, but, Nathan's great. He always asks some really good questions. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think we use that exact language or I don't remember recall if we did, but we do have like a number of policies at Supergiant sort of designed to save us from ourselves. Um, <laughs> um, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, we, we all want work that is creatively, um, you know, engaging and, you know, because work that's creatively engaging can also be consuming over time at Supergiant, over many games, we've had to come up with sort of these policies that are meant to kind of make sure that we, we work in a sustainable way. Um, and so we have a couple of those types of things that we've discovered over the years. And, um, you know, sometimes when I talk to other studio people, they're like, wow, I, you know, we've been doing that for a long time. And I'm like, man, I should have just asked you about this. Um, <laughs> um, but, but so it's not necessarily stuff we invented, but it's stuff that really does work for us. Um, so examples of that kind of thing are, we used to have unlimited time off and we found that no one took time off then. Um, mm -hmm. So we moved it to be like a mandatory minimum amount of time off. Um, so every year, you know, we encourage people to take 20 days off and, you know, if people are sitting on a lot of time, we try to find ways to make sure that they can work sustainably and, 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 and sort of get out of the office. Um, you know, we have this policy. Wait, wait, but Amir, before you go ahead, I, I got to yeah. ask this. If you make time off mandatory, what are those techniques that you use to get people to take it? I, it's a problem that I've run into as well, and I've never been able to figure it out. Yeah, it's really hard. Um, it's actually been exceptionally hard, honestly, during during this period of quarantine where, um, you know, a, a day off for someone might just be to be in the same place they are, where, you know, when they're working. Um, so I, I will I will be frank to say there's no secret there um, <laughs> uh, that I have discovered uh, other than honestly, it, it, it's like I feel like the obstacles to taking time off are, are often very personal. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know. It, it, for me, it, a lot of it is just conversing with each person individually and, you know, saying, hey, you know, what 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 would it take? Like, wh what state does the project need to be in? What state do you need to be in to actually take a break from this? Because often it's it's work itself. Um, if it's not something outside of work, that's that's preventing them. And so you, you have to you have to see it's like, man, does this person feel like they don't have a backup or is, is it, is it actually just too exciting of a time, you know, to take a Friday or take a Friday and a Monday off or something like that. So, um, we do that. And then also, um, you know, if you have a lot of time off towards the end, we often encourage you to just append it to the holiday break. Um, and so you're out for longer. And for some people that ends up just being what happens, they have a longer period of time off at the end of the year, um, where it's actually just a little bit easier for them to take time off. Um, so yeah, that's, one of the things we do, but I don't think there is a secret here. I, I actually find it quite challenging personally. But the part where you do, I mean, like someone, uh, you you specifically will notice if someone is sitting on their yeah. maximum. Like, it's funny that we're talking about this because Amir and I were literally talking about this, I think just yesterday when I put in the rest of my time off for the yeah. year because I was sitting on a bunch of time off and I'm like, oh, you know, okay, yeah. I, I, need to, I need to do this. It'd be, it, you know, for those of us where it may not come naturally, it's actually kind of convenient for for it to be framed almost as part of your like, almost as part of your job. Like you're not doing your job if you're not, 
if you're yeah. not do if you're not doing this. And and so if and if you care if you claim to care about your job so much, then do this. Um, and and I it's not like we there's no like public shaming around it or nothing like that. But but it is talked about. Um, you know, we talk about it as part of our team meetings, so everyone, everybody knows it's a thing. Everybody sees, like, who's, uh, you know, p- people put in their. It's a small enough team to where, like, you know, when folks are taking time off. So it's just nice that it's like it's just part of the culture in that way. Like we, it's just something that we do, and that makes it easier. It makes it harder to not do it, basically. Yeah. Um. It, it, so making it feel like an easy natural part of what you're supposed to do like as part of your job at least take this time off nobody disputes that it that people like shouldn't take you know at least this much time off and so on so when there's an intuitive understanding around it and like a culture that it's it's a good thing you should do it um whether for yourself or just you know for the sake of your colleagues and your work uh then i think that positions us as as much as possible to for it to actually happen and even still, like Amir says, it's still, that doesn't make it a cinch, even with all that. That's a, it sounds like a fantastic philosophy. And I'm assuming you guys are setting the examples, right? I mean, that's, I, I well, find for myself, <laughs> that's the hardest thing to do because yeah. I'm like, I, it, there's always something to do involving work. And I have to force myself to, to realize that others are taking their example from me sometimes. And if I'm not doing it, they're probably not going to feel good doing it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's hard because, um, you know, I don't know how you feel about it, Ted, but if someone asks you, why aren't you taking time off? What is your answer going to be? Oh, I got too much stuff to do. Right. Yeah. Terrible yeah. answer. Right. And it's yeah. exactly <laughs> the wrong thing to say. Yeah. It's, it's tricky too, because another way to say that might be, I actually really love what I do and I'm excited to do it right now. Um, <laughs> um, You're right. And, and, Good point. And, yes. Yeah. But, but you know, it, it's not always that it could be that though, some of the time. And, and even that is hard to convince someone to, to take a break from, um, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where the best thing that can happen sometimes is just a little bit like serendipity is if you can engineer an avalanche, like we had like two or three people decide that this week in October is when I'm going to go. And then a lot of people decided to yeah. jump on um, so it's, well, right, because you're not, you're not checking email constantly. You feel like you're act, everybody's unplugged and therefore there's not that itch to check your phone or yes. your PC all the time. Yeah, and it. that's actually the second thing we do, which I think really helps. Um, we, we have a policy basically that, um, we have a weekend cutoff basically Friday at five. We try to silence the slack and we don't send emails and we don't enter things into our task tracker. Um, and we use that as a way to, because I think a lot of people inadvertently get drawn into work, even when they're trying to take time off. Um, so if you can kind of like paralyze the communication around work, um, <laughs> at least you can sort of help the people who are, are, are stopping. Um, and that doesn't mean we sometimes don't have to have to say, Hey, there is going to be some communication because of some deadline. So, you know, which is not the same as saying you have to work. It's just saying, Hey, you might see some people emailing back and forth about this because it's really close to a deliverable or something like that. So, you know, a few times in a year, we might have to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it really helps to know on the team, at least we found this, that if there's an emergency, you will get a call or a text. It's not like emergencies are never going to happen. Um, so you don't have to keep checking. Um, because I think uh, I think a lot of us check a lot, even when it's quiet and even out of habit. And, and that, you know, the, that can kind of pull you back into work even when you didn't intend to. And, and that's just, you know, if you have a compelling job, if you're excited about things, if you don't want to let your teammates down, those are natural inclinations. And so 
that's part of kind of what I was saying about saving us from ourselves. I don't think we found all the right things yet, um, but those are some of the things that do help us. I love this phrase, silence the slack, right? That that makes a lot of sense because then it's sort of an official communication that it's okay. It's okay to unplug. It's okay to disconnect and actually have a life outside of work. Yeah. It's, yeah. That, it's, that change I thought was vital. Like that, that, that was, I was going to say, it's like a, it was like a lifesaver for me, the, the weekend cutoff. It's funny because we actually debated it uh, quite a bit at the time. It seemed because it's you know felt arbitrary it's like oh if i'm still working you know what's the harm in me like like updating everyone on my status and we we made the, the important distinction that it's not barring anyone if if people want to work at 5:30 p.m. on a friday it's not preventing them from doing that it's just saying you know now you're entering like solo work time um if uh, so get your team collaboration out of the way before then because other other people might not be in the space for this right now. And yeah, it, it was really a materially different feeling for me ever since we instituted that policy. Cause I was definitely one of those people I'd be at, you know, the whatever one time a week go out to dinner with my family, but I'd be checking my phone, you know, in the middle of dinner, something like, it's not like anyone was trying to bother me. Um, they didn't know I was at dinner at all. Right. And, and you, like you said, Amir, you don't want to like when, when it's a small team and people are depending on you, you don't want to let them down. Um, but, but it was this kind of the kind of mutual ceasefire uh, as it were, w has just worked really well. I thought, and you know, our weeks, our weeks can be packed, but when 5 PM on Friday rolls around, uh, it, it does feel different and we could have a relatively calm weekend uh, most of the time. Yeah. I will tell you just not that this is a psychology session for me, but I, uh, cause a lot of the problems because I will email people on the weekends and or at night and without even thinking about how I am creating probably a lot more problems than I'm solving. And my own team will call me, has called me out on this a lot. And it's a, been a hard habit to break, but I mean, just for anybody who is like you guys are and, and I am in a leadership position, it makes a big difference when we ourselves can actually not be a part of the problem. Yeah. We will. Uh, I'm sure, Amir, that you've done this. You're, I, I have certainly queued up a whole bunch of emails for Monday morning, you know, but 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 it's after the ceasefire. <laughs> it's yeah. fair game yeah. at that point, And it does it does make a difference. And, yeah, we get into some situations where, you know, uh, I'd, I'd love to talk about this. We have our we have our backups right again. Like we can if there's something if there's really something up, we we, we can still uh, communicate if need be. But we, we have a sense that if if it can wait, it it ought to wait. And that, yeah, that's been, we, we have to adhere to that ourselves for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you know, it's Ted, one of the questions I'd ask is if you schedule send all of those o'clock <laughs> in the morning on Monday, is your team going to feel better about being slammed on Monday or are they going to feel better that they got it as you thought of it? Well, in, in talking to my team members, they would, they're much better uh, off with the Monday emails because I, I mean, it signals that at least we're trying to be considerate, right? Or at least I'm trying to be considerate of others versus just you know blindly firing things out when they when they strike me. Uh, but I think something else that Greg and Amir, you both sort of hinted at was the prioritization of of crises, right? I, Amir, you mentioned that you've let everybody know that look, we will text you if there's a problem, right? Which again is a great signal that. Uh, 
Only in emergencies will we be work. Will we be reaching out? And here, for example, are the kinds of emergencies that uh, we would actually act on. It 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 does really help psychologically. I think you know because you just um, you also I, anyone who cares about the the role they're in and our team, almost everyone has something that would be considered urgent at some point in a project. You just want to know that someone will reach out to you. You don't have to keep checking yourself. Um, right. So it's just more about relieving you of the need to check if you can, um, because emergencies do happen. Like if we're at PAX and we need something or there's an asset and the, the deliver, you know, the deadline was actually Monday morning and, you know, we, we forgot about it or something like that. Those things do come up every once in a while. And, and in, you know, most cases, the person actually wants to do it um, <laughs> um, yeah. because it is an emergency. And so, you know, if those things come up, we just... We just make sure to have a quick conversation with the person. Don't have to go back into their email and wonder if something awaits them, you know, on a on a Saturday morning. Right. I, I got to tell you, I could talk about culture for weeks, but I I also want to talk a lot about Hades. And so, you both were talking about early access for Hades, and and it's clearly been had a massive positive impact on the game. And uh, what, if any? debates did you have prior to going to early access for the game? Yeah, it's, it's funny, uh, Amir, it was the, it was literally the first decision we made on the project before we had a game genre, before we had like the theme, um, early access, I think was, was the actual, uh, inception point of what we wanted to do. And I think, wow. I think the, um, the motivations were, were twofold. There was a part of it that was, um, I think we, on some level we were drawn to it because it was like scary and exciting and in some ways antithetical to how we worked in the past. Uh, but uh, part of the reason we were also drawn to it is because it seemed like it would shore up, it would give us the opportunity to shore up like certain, like make our development more efficient in a word and be able to test uh, our ideas sooner rather than waiting three years to like put a game out there and ask the world, you know, so what do you think? How do we do? We could we could get something out there maybe in one year, um, and then from there have have like feedback much more frequently. So we we surmised that it would just allow us to make um, like a you know more more stable, maybe bigger, maybe better video game than we could have left to our own devices. That that was like kind of the hypothesis going in. Um, Amir, is there is there anything you would add to that? No, I think that's accurate. I mean, I think a part of it too is we say a lot that our games. Every game is a reaction in some way to yeah. the one right before it, right? And so, Pyre's production was actually very similar to the to, to Bastion and Transistor. You know, we work in obscurity with no one knowing what we're working on. We announce it with something playable, and people start playing the game. And we get initial reactions to it, and then we go back and make the rest of it. <laughs> um, and then, and then, you know, we we release the game, and we learn what the entire world thinks about the game. You know, with a day or a couple days all at once um and all the decisions made in the past are all you know vindicated or or challenged or whatever all in in a in a, in a single moment and so for us it's it's it was just a it was a way of of changing the process and we were we were interested in changing the process um because we had done it the other way so many times um and so in the process had all the seemed to have all the strengths that greg was saying um so it was it was pretty appealing to us yeah, the, one of the important things was that we, uh, at least to us, was that we speculated that it wasn't mutually exclusive with our, our like, 
kind of the our approach to storytelling in games, as it were, which which I think traditionally uh, early access is seen as being you know not really well. It's really good for replayable games, like systems heavy games that you could just play you know infinitely because in early access you want to have a community of players constantly giving you feedback so it doesn't really lend itself to like a six hour uh, narrative game uh, like like you know like something like transistor um so we it, but yeah we we thought you know maybe we could have a story here too just done a little bit uh, differently and and that that was something you know we were at least excited to try out see how that would go were there any decisions you made along the way which went against what you were hearing from players? I mean, there must uh, there must have been right. L- like we uh, we had a. I mean, I think I think we paused a bit on that because we we were careful to frame our relationship with our community in a in a particular way from the start, which is that like we we on a high level we know where this game is going, and we hope that our players uh, trust us in that because you know if they've enjoyed our games in the past probably the last thing that they would want is for us to just make our games kind of by committee based on just kind of listening to what what the loudest people would would have us do or something like that so the the feedback that we get is one dimension of how we um we advance our games and we we get feedback you know across the board right about every single aspect of the game but we we ask our audience that or we we tell our audience that the feedback that we really really value most of all um is is your personal experience with our game like talk about what what you experienced uh you know where were you frustrated where were you delighted where were you confused that stuff is gold to us because that helps us sort of triangulate where we think we're going with with how we're actually doing uh, whereas if someone you know gives us their suggestions for what Olympians to include in the game, and someone's like, you should add you know Apollo and Hephaestus, it's cool for us to hear that, but that may not be aligned with the direction our story is taking, and so on. And if we know where our story is going, um, that that type of feedback, it, it's still it's still important for us to hear where players want the game to go, you know what what they're thinking about. But uh, we we really want to know how players are engaging with the game. The, in its current form, not not the not the kind of theoretical version that they would make themselves. Um, right. Hopefully, that's not an uncharitable no, uh, description. Right. Yeah. I think part of part of framing our relationship with our players too. This was inspired by the way Dead Cells did their patch notes. Is we were also always clear when we did make a change that was inspired yeah. by their feedback. Um, and it's a ton. Yeah, it's, it's like. A ton. It's, we, what did you say, Greg, before? It might be 40%. It's probably, yeah. If you just, we haven't like done the math on it, but surely, yeah, if you just scan through our patch notes, it's yeah. got to be like at least like 40% or more of our changes in our notes are, are like directly inspired by yeah. the community. Yeah. That, they were having a conversation about it. They had a note about it. Multiple people had a note about it. And we went back and as part of our feature week and thinking of what we're going to do, we decided to make a change or in a follow-up patch, we tune something a little bit differently or, or that type of thing. So I think we were, we were, we had the right relationship framed the right way. And we were also responsive. Um, we were clear when we were doing things because of a conversation in the community about it. And so, um, that was, that was pretty, um, I think pretty helped people stay engaged with the process at a minimum. And I think it also made just the game, uh, a better overall. And there's definitely like a communication 
challenge uh, through early access, right? Like we we tried to be very we tried to be very direct with our development roadmap, like tried to set expectations very accurately about what about what we were working on, how big the game was going to be, and so on, which which just helped because you know even with players really enjoying the game and and potentially spending literally hundreds of hours playing, in some cases they they still wanted like more you know they wanted it to be even bigger um, and and you know more gods, more weapons, more more environments and 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 that stuff is exciting to think about um but but we were interested in completing the story that we had in mind and and you know uh, and basically ultimately uh shipping the 1.0 launch version of the game and and being being clear and direct with our players about where we were at with that stuff what they could expect um was really helpful because even even when it, it just led to good uh community interactions where players generally were on the same page as us as, as to what could be expected, but it still gave us plenty of room in each of our updates to have fun little surprises that were like, you know, they were lower level than stuff that we would put in our development roadmap. So it, I think we were able to still surprise people despite having like a clear roadmap for them about, about what would, what would go into the game. Cause we don't, we don't want to overinflate players expectations. We don't want to overpromise. We'd rather, you know, over-deliver than over-promise, right? That makes a lot of sense. And given that, uh, to what Amir said, he said that a major portion of the game was directly influenced by the players. What, do you, either of you remember any of those sort of golden aha moments that were the result of player feedback? I mean, yeah, there's, there's tons of them, right? Yeah, there's yeah. so many of them. A lot of them are kind of more on the on the tuning and, and stuff, um, but there was tons of them all over. I mean, Greg, a recent more world atmosphere one i remember is was the reverb possibly yeah or, yeah that's yeah, exactly. that's a really subtle uh, subtle really feature subtle. but yeah go ahead no i mean the the community had tons of cool suggestions yeah someone was like you know in in the game you can kind of uh decorate the house of hades is your main hub and it starts off as this kind of spooky you know oppressive feeling environment but over time you can start to decorate it and so on someone had a really cool uh, audio suggestion of like oh you should kind of dampen the reverb because mm -hmm. as you know if you go to like a showroom house and it's empty, it's super echoey. But as you put in your furniture and stuff, it it gets um, you know the the sound feels different. And and we we added a feature like that late in development because it really kind of supported what we were trying to do with the house anyway, where it feels a, a bit more homey uh, kind of uh, as you play the game more and more. Um, so that's like a very direct example of uh, a suggestion that we used uh, pretty much verbatim. But in many cases, you know we um, Amir, I think like you, you know, we talked recently about the weapon aspect system and the end game. Like, we were going to do some version of an end game, of course, no matter what. But the the kind of the contours of it and the specific design was really born out of how players were like engaging with uh, with the game itself and and engaging with it more than we expected, right? Like, it's it's not that we read the suggestion for the aspect system on like our discord, but I think the way people were playing the game um, did inspire it uh, pretty directly. And we wouldn't have like developed that specific idea left to our own devices. No, absolutely not. That's an example of a thing where like you're saying, it wasn't a specific suggestion, but some of these late game systems come together as a function of looking how people play, looking at the data about how much people are playing, looking at the data about how, you know, people are using the pact of punishment, this optional in-game difficulty system, and they're engaging it in the specific way. How do we structure that? 
Um, there's a lot of angst about this aspect of the game. Um, how do we? How could we address that with a change to one of our systems, or even with a simple tuning change? Um, and so, uh, all those things go into it, and uh, they just become part of the development process. Is just, you know, I, I personally read uh, a ton of the of the feedback, and we made it. We have a Discord channel where we actually someone on the team read every single thing entered, um, and so. That was kind of our contract, um, and we stuck to it. Even when you know it was so much easier when that number was two hundred. By the time of the blood price update came out, which is the one right before one point it was twenty three hundred discrete ideas um, or suggestions wow. or moments or or whatever. And we read it all, um, <laughs> um, and part of that is like you know we were talking about literature earlier. You read it and you start to see a theme, right? You yeah. start to see, you start to see something in there, and you're like, you know what? there is maybe something here. Um, and, you know, this person might have articulated it this way and this other person might have articulated it in a, another way, but there is maybe something here that we could address. And it's back to constraints. You know, the things that the customers don't have access to is our constraints. And we don't advertise them um, for reasons that I think Greg can articulate really, really well. Um, you know, because often, uh, you know, players, it's like they, they don't care, they shouldn't care. They, they're just interested in the experience. And, you know, we filter it through through our sense of the constraints and what's possible, what's the story we're trying to tell, what's the gameplay we want, what's the experience we want, what's our experience with the game. Um, and we and we try to we try to just incrementally push it to be better and better. And it's it's kind of like uh, it's often we talk about like a like a problem solving mindset, like if, if the community is all talking about something um, and and not in a positive way for us it's like a it's a legitimate problem so we we like that's why we created an early access game because we want to know what are those things that are kind of what are those sticking points for you what what's getting in the way of of you enjoying the game what's causing you to be distracted from having the kind of experience we would like for you to have um and the just being able to identify those themes um and then you know like consider them in the context of our constraints. We can often come up with, uh, you know, unexpected solutions because we we just want to we want to find ways to address that kind of feedback one way or another, and and hopefully get it so that you know the community moves on to talk about what what's the next thing, what's the next thing that's a, that's a problem for you now now that we've uh, now that we've solved this, and if we can do that methodically um, across all dimensions of the game, then hopefully we have a pretty good game at the at the end of it. Um, and and our audience is there, you know, to to keep us to to check our blind spots, as it were, because yeah, again, part of the appeal of early access is, you know, when we're right in the thick of production, you know, a year and a half into one of our games, you could start to have some of that like difficulty seeing the forest for the trees type of thing. And uh, but an early access player base will will kind of keep you honest. They'll they'll tell you uh, what are the parts of the game that aren't working well or that are working well, and it just it's really helpful for internal conversations because we don't have to kind of debate each other over what's important in the game. We have like real evidence from our players uh, pretty much at all times. So, so that felt very like liberating, I think all through development, it meant we could kind of move pretty quickly and more confidently than we could in the past. That makes a lot of sense. And what I also like is your description of the, your mention of some of the systems and how, you're exposing them to players. Going back to the early, early part of early access, 
What were some of the first things that you prototyped? It was the um, it was the room to room movement, right? Like one of the first things was just like stitching together encounters, um, and it just getting. Well, we had to like restore the idea of like direct character control and and you know getting a character who can swing a weapon. Those, those things sound very basic, but in our previous games, we didn't have uh, that mode of interaction. But from there, yeah, it was. It was kind of getting the the most minimal version of the game loop down, um, and we started with narrative uh, prototyping as well because we were very, like one of our goals from the start was to kind of take the sting out of the moment of death, um, which was uh, through I think two main techniques. One was having like a narrative that would like like the idea of narrative continuity from one death to the next, and then the other was the this sense of permanent progression so that. You know, yeah, you died and that sucks. But uh, on the plus side, you got all these cool resources during your run, and now you get to spend them on stuff and kind of power up, and then you know take your character uh, back in um, and maybe get a little farther than you could before between the the permanent progression and your own kind of growth of knowledge and experience. Uh, but I think we were just yeah trying to get like the actual room to room structure to work at all and see what like what the randomness could do for the game we've we've you know that bore fruit uh quite quickly right like we we identified those things that we wanted to prototype and they we were pretty happy with the results uh, pretty fast i think yeah and part of that is is you know working in the established genre of the roguelike at least even it, there were a lot of there are a lot of reference material that we could look at but, you know, for our direct combat room-to-room roguelike stuff, like, you know, oh, why don't we put the chamber rewards on the door? And so you can see yeah. that that's the kind of stuff that came out of the early prototyping of like, oh, it's, you know, at first we thought, well, we need to advertise the whole thing. Like, we, you know, yeah, we had these big text messages, right? Yeah, you're going to fight and what all the stuff is in the room. So you can make this really dense, you know, crazy decision about, uh, you know, weighing the pros and cons and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, actually just put the reward because um, <laughs> the fun part is, is knowing what you're going to get and the surprise is in what's going to be inside. So, so there's just a, there's a lot of stuff that came out of that early prototyping that worked surprisingly fast. Um, and it's, it's weird to me, you know, you mentioned Bastion earlier, Greg, it's just one of those things where um I don't know what the correlation is, but sometimes when things move really fast, when things are coming together really quickly, it's kind of a magical thing. Oh, um, yeah. And it was it was happening really fast um, in the early part of prototyping gray box stuff with Hades. I love the fact that you mentioned the symbols on the door because for me, a lot of the fun has been trying to remember what those symbols are. Even though yeah. I played you know, a lot of hours of the game, I'm still... I'm still kind of thrilled every time I see a symbol where I'm going, what is that again? Oh yeah, that gives me this uh, versus you being explicit about it. You're still yeah. you know, creating sort of a sense of mystery. And that's very cool that that was an early discovery. And I, I think that's one of those decisions though, that uh, had we not been an early access game, I, I, I doubt we would have ever made that decision. I don't think we would have been like, we needed to put that in front of a bunch of people and see that it was actually okay. Um, that, that, you know, we, we would get this feedback of like, at first, I didn't know what anything meant. But as I played more, I figured it out. And we were like, oh, cool. Uh, the, because our, yeah, like Amir was saying, our intuition was, you know, this is not, this needs to be more descriptive. Um, uh, and, and you know, through getting enough feedback, we found it, it was actually okay. And that we, we could, like, like the, the kind of immediacy of the game 
was more important than than just kind of like the over tutorial tutorialization of it so that players they would have plenty of time to figure all this stuff out right you kind of get to experiment your way through the game um and it it was cool to see that actually working on players very cool and one thing other thing that i just love about the game is how well tuned it is for a game that is as deep as it is and I'll, i'll just gush a little bit more uh, the strategic balance between the weapons as well uh, was just so well done or is so well done. I, I feel like every time I'm picking up a different weapon to do a, a different run, it it's still a new experience. And so when it comes to tuning, and, and given that you guys are, uh, we're all English majors, how much math was involved in that? From So that's something I spent a lot of time doing uh, personally. Can, can confirm. Can confirm, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I will tell you, there is not a lot of math involved for me. Um, there's actually the things that are involved. So I always talk about this or try to talk about this with my, the three things for me that are the, that go into tuning the weapons are my experience with the thing. First and foremost, I want, you know, one of the things that really helps me feel good about the game is that there are these streamers who have played since, you know, December, 2018 or January, 2019. And they still stop when they get a when they get a choice in the game. Sometimes they still stop. Even you would think hmm. by now they would have solved the whole game, but they still stop because um, you know the choices they're being offered. It's not obvious, or the or the room reward they want, the chamber reward they want. It's not clear to them yet which one they should pick. Um, and to me, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for compelling choices mo- first and foremost across the game in the gameplay. Um, people often ask me you know, in the community about weapon balance and stuff, what kind of balance are you trying to achieve? And for me, I don't think about it in exactly those terms. I'm thinking about compelling choice. Um, and and so, you know, you make a lot of decisions in, our, in a run of Hades and they need to be a balance of not taking you like an hour and a half with a, you know, spreadsheet to determine what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. And, and, but still make you pause for a moment to figure out what is, what is the choice that fits with what I'm trying to achieve in this run. And so, uh, you know, that's uh, the my experience with it is the first thing. The second and and the, the sub point there is the team's experience. I get a lot of feedback from from the team about what stuff is working for them and what what is not. Then when it becomes public, <laughs> um, the community's feedback. And then the third pillar for the first time ever in a super giant game was actually like the anonymous data we collect um, that people can can, you know, opt into or, or opt out of. But um we actually were able to see stuff like, well, what, how often is this thing being picked and, and this kind of thing. And, and that helped us get even closer, especially helps for stuff on the margins, like what's r- like way over and what's way under. Um, and we got to a place I'm really, really happy with, you know, in, in 1.0 where, um, you know, people's first clears are, are with a variety of weapons. And that wasn't always the case over the course of our early access. Um, mm. But by the time we got to 1.0, with a combination of all the things I mentioned, uh, a lot of different weapons are people's first clears, um, which is great because it means uh, we got back to one of the original goals for the game when we were just writing down the ideas, which is like um, some portion of it is at least a little bit expressive. Um, some portion of it is based on your preference as a player, uh, what you're drawn to or what or or how a run came together or any of the any number of factors, how your knowledge finally built, um, you know, how much progress you gained in the game and understanding of stuff. And 
and you know you earned earned a clear um and so these types of things are you know again like greg was saying about many aspects of early access i do not think we get there um <laughs> without a community um and without the the combination of the feedback and the data from the community but also it's just um it just it it kind of settled into a, a very natural process for us um which allowed us to keep making incremental improvements in this area that's a great answer and uh I, you, you talk about a little bit about following the numbers. Have mm-hmm. the numbers surprised you in any way? And I'll give you what I'm particularly interested in: the number of people who have actually, you know, uh, cleared it once, and then those who have hundred percented, like the game. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I won't ask what they are. I mean, I just. I mean, yeah, it's, no. it's such a big game. Yeah. Uh, deceivingly big. So. Yeah, but I can tell you that that was the case from the very first. Uh, release. You know, we we had a certain amount of content in the game and we sort of hoped and maybe thought that people would sort of politely just sort of stop when they ran out, but they kept going and doing runs yeah. because they were compelled. Um, that was actually one of the first big changes we made to our early access schedule is we moved a late game system to help with replayability from the fourth update into the first update. Um, and it's an example of something where we were like, realized how important it was to constantly factor in the replayability of the game, the the part where you know the march to your first clear and then the, and then what happens after you get your first clear like so much of hades happens after your first clear um yeah so much of hades happens even even deeper than that and so it's one of those things where uh again if we had in pre-pro decided that we were going to have so much game content after your first clear i think it would have been really hard to justify but oh yeah we, we could see how people were playing the game, how they were engaging it, like, you know, how skillful they were becoming at it and, and you know, how, how powerful players were getting with combinations of the mirror and all these different things. And and it became an easier decision over time to, to structure the game around that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where uh, that's part of the way in which the game became a lot bigger um, because uh, people were playing it so much. They still are. Um, they're 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 engaging every aspect of the game. They're finding stuff in it. Um, and you know, they, that, that, that way was paved for them by many other players before them. And, and so, you know, we have high confidence that there are surprises for people really, really deep in. Um, and, and so that's, that's something that, that obviously feels, feels really good, um, to know that it's just, you know, we wanted a game from the start. You could spend more time in a super giant world. And I think we're, still surprised and and completely delighted by how much time that ends up being. Um, yeah, we, we thought it was, I remember, I think early on we were saying, you know, oh, it would be amazing if people could play this for like 20, maybe maybe 50 hours. And then, you know, people were exceeding 50 hours uh, from our early access launch. So we, we were, and, and doing it, you know, it's not like the game has any, they're doing it intrinsically. There's no like login rewards. There's no systems in the game to like induce um you know repeated player hours spent it's not like an account-based game or any of that you buy it you you know you play it as much or as little as you want so it was really just people enjoying it um that that was the conclusion that we drew um and that was really it was really heartening and really exciting and it did um put us in a position to i think basically just like develop it toward the upper end of the ambition that we were considering um, as you know, whereas if no one liked it from the early access launch, I think we would have scaled the ambition back 
down accordingly, right? If no one was playing it into the late game, then why would we have made all this uh, late game stuff? Um, and that, that's an example of, you know, again, like the actual feedback we were getting really helping us make the kind of smartest, hopefully some of the smartest possible decisions with our with our production time as we could, um, it, like spending it on on stuff that was we knew was meaningful to to players. They wanted they wanted reasons to be able to keep going, and so um, we we prioritized uh, stuff like that. I, I think that's such a great revelation. I mean, I know it's not uh, conventional for any developer to really focus heavily on late game content because you know we all assume that that they're diminishing returns as people play, but. You know, I, I will, again, gush a little bit as a player. It, it does feel like a never-ending treasure box where there's always something cool that you're trying for. There's always something around the corner. And furthermore, when you when you read about the game online, you've got lots of players out there who are saying, no, just wait. Just wait. You're, you're 50 hours in? Well, just wait, right? <laughs> keep going because it gets even better. And those are the kinds of, that's the kind of community support uh, based which is, I think, invaluable, but also is a testament to, to, to that deep design you guys embraced. Uh, and again, I could talk forever about this stuff because it's so cool. But I, I do want to shift gears for just a second and, and kind of end with some larger questions uh, about just, or, or actually ask you for some advice for people who may be listening. And you are uh, uh, an incredibly successful indie independent developer and there are more and more people who want to get into the business today for anybody who's starting an indie studio what advice would you give them yeah that's a that's a tricky one sorry it's, that's a big question how about yeah, this no, what it, one piece of advice would you give yeah them? yeah no i think we're just pausing part of it is that we haven't started an indie studio in 11 years right yeah <laughs> yeah so, we, so like a lot of our knowledge feels almost dated um, yeah, we actually caution people around this that that what worked for us um, in you know back pre Bastion. I don't know that most of those things would necessarily translate in the same way today. Um, well, yeah, I, from, you know, from, I can understand that too, though. I mean, Insomniac, we 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 have, we were independent for twenty five years, and same thing. I mean, we didn't consider ourselves an indie studio, but a lot of people looked at us as independent, and which brings with it a unique set of challenges like funding right? And marketing and all the things that you, you have to figure out if you don't have a larger corporate parent. Uh, and it's, it's an interesting and different existence. So maybe a better question would be, what is the secret to success for surviving as an independent studio in today's world? Yeah. I, I, I don't know if it's the secret to success, but at least something that feels consistent in a lot of these cases is just the, the, the team, right? It's the quality of the of the relationships and the and the 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 chemistry between people and the collaboration and the support of each other through uh, times which can be very very hard and which are uncertain and um, which which ask a lot of you and I don't I don't know uh, I don't even know what the piece of advice is there I just feel like uh, a learning is that it really does matter um, who who you're doing with it with um, and and you know, how deep, how deep your relationship is with them. And, 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 you know, we've talked about it, things, things can get really hard and, and the, their support is what's going to get you through it. It certainly has, you know, for me through all this, 
through through all these different these different projects and these different titles, each very different than the last. Um, so, uh, you know, there are those creators who can make everything by themselves, and that's super impressive and amazing to me. Um, and and if you're if you're sort of in a in a position where you where you are going to collaborate with others, the 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 quality of those relationships and the and and all of that stuff, it's gonna it's gonna matter a lot. I, I would add, I, I think something, you know, I don't know that it's advice, but something that for sure has worked for us is just to, is just to touch back on the, on the embracing of constraints. So like Bastion was a game that was entirely born of the, the people who were working on it. It didn't start with like a complete design where then Amir had to like hire, you know, to, to each of the positions in order to fulfill this highly specific vision. Um, instead, uh, it was born of the individuals who are working on it and their uh, and their strengths. Um, and I think over time, you know, it's taken us like a decade, I think, for this to become uh, more more completely apparent to us. I, I suppose because uh, we certainly went through a lot of challenges figuring out um, our subsequent games. But more recently, I think we've just been a bit more self-aware about that. Of like, rather than let's let's make the kind of games that we can make uniquely well based on the skill sets that we have on team because it's hard enough to ship anything at all we might as well make the kind of stuff that we're we feel relatively good at and enjoy making rather than just trying to uh, force ourselves to to work on stuff that is is like way more is beyond our means so like you know maybe there's a fan of supergiant out there who's like hoping that we're going to make like a massively multiplayer shooter or something like that. But that's an example of a genre that is like out. Well, <laughs> Andrew, Andrew, actually our, our CTO used to work at infinity ward. So maybe a bad example, but uh, we, um, for the most part, it's like, if, if we have no idea how to make certain things, like we, we may research them in our spare time, but we're, we're not going to hang our hat. Like our entire design isn't going to hinge on stuff that we don't think we know how to do. Um, and that's that's served us well because at least we can then we can get into a better position to like start working quickly and seeing results quickly like like we talked about before and then you know from there it just it feels good it feels like you have momentum and you're making progress and you're you're kind of chipping away at something instead of getting stuck uh, all the time on really difficult problems and getting getting stuck in the mud so that momentum I think helps uh, carry you know individuals as well as teams through some of the some of the inevitable like tough moments in, in development and hopefully you start to feel like you're working on something that has potential to be special one day if you if you finish it um yeah so that that's that's certainly helped uh, keep me going personally through each of our games well the passion absolutely comes through i mean it's clear that the team loves the games that you make right i mean your team's personality i think comes through with every single thing that you've done and I mean, as an outsider, somebody who's played all your games and likes to kind of look within, it's, it's kind of cool to ascribe, uh, to, to match a, a game's sort of feel to, to a team, right? And I think you guys have explained it really well today in terms of um, how those games come about and is all because of the people at Supergiant. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. We always yeah. hope that the games feel like they came from us and uh, and that you know 
that always gets answered when they actually come out really. Um, <laughs> so, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's always great to hear that, that, that that's the case. Thank you. Yeah. Well, if, uh, people have questions for you or want to get in touch with Supergiant, is there, are you on Twitter? Do you have, you encourage people to go to your website? Yeah, we're, we're Supergiant Games on, on Twitter. Um, there, you can, you can reach out to us via our website. Um, I'm on Twitter personally, just Kasavan, my last name. Yeah, no, for sure. And there's also our Discord, and you can see me hanging out there sometimes. Yeah, our Discord, of course. Yeah, um, it's, it's just Discord GG slash Supergiant. That, that is where we spend. Um, we're kind of always around there. It's a good, it's a really great community, I think, that, that we've built up. Um, a lot of, it's just folks from all over the world united just by the fact that they've played some of our games um and otherwise they yeah they can talk to all talk about all sorts of stuff and our team members are in there as well that is really cool um yeah i would encourage everybody i think i'm gonna have to go there now so <laughs> certainly now that I've, I've got more questions about the game so and always will as i play more and more of it uh so hey guys thank you so much for joining today yeah it was a lot of fun and, and congratulations on just a beautiful and immensely fun game Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.